You ever feel that it's all too much? Every day another abuse, every day another scandal, every day another insult, every day another lie. The times seem out of joint. Daily political outrage, mass shootings, trade wars, the rise of a belligerent China and Russia, the continuing warming of the planet, the huge wildfires in Siberia over the summer, unprecedented heat waves in Europe and Australia, the rapid erosion of the Brazilian rainforest. How do you respond nowadays to children separated from their parents on our borders, or news of boatloads of migrants from Africa drowning at sea trying to reach Italy? with the same moral fervor as before? Or have you lost a moral step? Do you feel you are ethically, emotionally, and even physically overloaded, unable to keep pace with and weighed down by the affronts and profanities of our times, of a world that seems to be spinning out of control? Are you discouraged, despondent, demoralized, even depressed, feeling helpless, unable to make any difference at all? There is all too much suffering, too much chaos. Are you still engaged? Or have you checked out, paralyzed by the bigness of a world that does not care about your small concerns. I'm checking out. Hakuna Matata. <laughs> what a wonderful phrase. Hakuna Matata ain't no passing craze. It means no worries for the rest of our days. It's our problem-free philosophy. Hakuna Matata. There's so much anger nowadays, ungracious, uncaring, ungenerous, and often unhinged. People out to rage about nothing, and people doing nothing about outrage. Do you find yourself fatigued by the Spirited, wokeful, rather than awoken from your spiritual fatigue. That you are on overdrive, overburdened, and overtaken by problems not of your making and impenetrable to your undoing. Who doesn't feel this way, at least from time to time? How often can we be indignant? How many times can we rage against another mass shooting without reaching a breaking point where our conscience atrophies and our spirit withers. The more sensitive we are, the greater is the frustration, the tendency to admit our failure to make any kind of difference at all. The complexity of the world is crushing, overwhelming, 
political leaders appear unable to chart the way forward. Some seem interested in just blowing things up, undoing what has taken decades to build. Others are more like bureaucrats, desperate to manage events that they do not fully understand or control. We do not feel in the saddle riding progress. Rather, as Emerson wrote, things are in the saddle and ride mankind, and doth the man unking. We are distracted, divided, dejected, discouraged, disheartened, and morally disabled. Part of me envies Jonah, the forlorn prophet of Yom Kippur. Must have been comfortable inside the whale. You can imagine Jonah, I don't know if you remember that Disney cartoon, like Geppetto, setting up a rocking chair and a candle inside the living room of the whale's belly. He could read Greek poetry or study Socrates possible contemporary of the author of Jonah. He could be completely oblivious to the outside world. Nothing would reach him through layers of whale blubber. No sound, no disturbance, no disruption. Even the mightiest shofar blast would go unheard inside the whale. This prophet whom God so challenged could devote himself solely to himself. The world's cacophony of contention, impregnable to his cocoon of contentment. It was the ancient world's first story of escapism, the human tendency to retreat into our own space, hakuna matata, to leave the troubles of the world behind when they appear too overwhelming. Instead of alighting to Nineveh to proclaim moral judgment upon it, which, after all, is the job of a prophet. Jonah escaped to Tarshish, as far from Nineveh as the ancients could imagine. The world's iniquities were so overwhelming that it triggered in Jonah the flight rather than the fight impulse. The book of Jonah warns that even prophets get discouraged. Even they want to hide. Jonah was so demoralized that he asked God to die. Take my life, God, for I would rather die than live. He was not the only prophet who prayed for death, unable to bear the weight of their times. I cannot carry this people by myself. It is too much for me, cried Moses. Kill me, I beg of you, and let me see no more of my wretchedness. Cursed the day that I was born, Jeremiah lamented. Cursed be the one who brought my father the news, a boy is born to you. Why did I ever issue from the womb to see such misery and woe? If you reach a point of alienation, desperate to disengage from the degradations of our age, I know exactly how you feel. 
I often feel the same way. I catch myself shrugging my shoulders and moving on after the latest mass shooting. Hardly registers with me anymore. I'm embarrassed and concerned by my inability to summon the moral indignation of Columbine, Sandy Hook, Stoneman Douglas. But to disengage from the fight is to leave the field to the armies of infamy and the captains of chaos who may be passionate, but are passionate for all the wrong things. To withdraw leads to a world that falls apart. The center cannot hold. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Sooner or later, we will discover what Jonah discovered and what every society since has learned and relearned. We can't hide. We cannot shut out the problems of our world. Our 20th century prophet, Martin Luther King, said it best. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Whatever affects one indirectly affects all. I cannot be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you cannot be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality, said King, who offered that much better definition of intersectionality than what our faux prophets offer today. To run to Tarshish is to distance ourselves from ourselves, to shut ourselves off, to live inside the whale, is to live outside the human experience. It's the opposite of safety. To be human is to be vulnerable. By empathizing with the struggles of others, we strengthen ourselves. We build immunity to moral disease. To shut the world out is to invite chaos that will eventually lead back to us anyway. Human emotions, human unreason, the human vices of envy, revenge, and conquest will hunt you down, even in your carefully constructed cocoon. They will find you, even inside the whale at the bottom of the ocean. You can't hide. If left unchecked, extremism will find you. As Herman Melville put in the mouth of Captain Ahab, death to the whale. God hunt us all. If we do not hunt Moby Dick to his death, I'll chase him round good hope and round the horn and round the Norway maelstrom and round perdition's flames before I give him up. Towards thee I roll, to the last I grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. There's no escaping the sordidness of those who Melville described as morally enfeebled, who carry the hot fires of all the general rage and hell, hate 
felt by the human race from Adam down. You can't escape. You can't hide from the degradations and the degraders of our times. They will spit their last breath at thee. So if escape is not the response, what is? There's only one response in Judaism. To fight back. The fight is what counts. The fight for justice itself gives meaning. We cannot retreat from the world. To be Jewish is to care about people in society. We are forbidden to disengage. We fight to the last gasp. To fight for others is to fight against alienation and despair. We know that we will not be able to finish the task. But Judaism does not demand that we finish, only that we not withdraw. Lo alecham lachaligmor, velo ata ven chorin liyvater mimena. You are not obligated to complete the work Rabbi Tarfon taught, but you are not free to neglect it. We are not free to desist because to desist is to allow the instincts of empathy to deteriorate and the muscles of responsibility to atrophy. We are commanded to act because our resolve weakens when we do not act. There's not enough oxygen inside the whale to keep the candle of conscience burning. It must be kindled conscientiously, constantly. Judaism is one giant proclamation of dissatisfaction that the world is not what it could be, and one giant struggle to create a world that ought to be. A believing Jew is a disquieted Jew. Our purpose is not serenity, patiently awaiting our passage from this world to eternity. There is, of course, speculation in Judaism about the world to come. But our primary focus was always this world. For Jews, engagement is required. Everything we receive from Jewish tradition pleads with us, get more involved. Be more active. Do not give up. Never give up. Trying is what Judaism expects. We know that the wolf will not lie down with the lamb today, nor will the leopard lie down with the kid tomorrow. But we also know that human beings ought to be peaceful, that each of us ought to be able to lay under vine and fig tree unafraid. Do not give up. Do not retreat. Come out of the whale. Veshmaet kol Adonai Omer, את מי ישלח? ומי ילך לנו? ואמר, הנני, שלחני. And I heard the voice of God asking, who shall I send? And who shall go for us? And then I said, הנני, here I am. שלחני. Send me. 
like Isaiah, act as if you are summoned by a higher force. Do not let your conscience corrode. When it dies, you die, a form of spiritual death. The life of the spirit is what gives substance to our limited days, sustenance to our struggle for meaning, and subsistence to our fragile community. Apathy, lethargy, and complacency hollow out our human essence, that capacity to care about and empathize with fellow human beings. When you feel spiritually down, overloaded, and overwhelmed, force yourselves to look at that picture of the refugee father and child washed up dead on the beach. Force yourselves to look at the desperation of hunger and homelessness in our country. Force yourselves to look at the misery of the inner city, to consider the deprivations of poverty and its insidious erosion of the human spirit. Force yourselves to look deeply into the eyes of the victims of gun violence, their torn bodies, and their shattered families. And then, resolve to fight back in any way you can. If you are a writer, write about the struggle to straighten the crooked timber of humanity. If you are a teacher, Teach not only mathematical calculus, teach moral calculus, teach not only value, but values. If you're a preacher, preach God's demand for a just world. If you are an attorney, fight for justice. If you are well off financially, if you're privileged, learned, influential, or capable. Use these gifts not to escape, not to find shelter from the world, but as a springboard to change the world. Use your powers for good. As Mordechai said to Esther, if you keep silent in this crisis, you and your father's house will perish. The extremists will find you. Who knows? Perhaps you have attained this influential position for just this crisis. Aristides de Sousa Mendes was the Portuguese consul general in Bordeaux in June of 1940. He attained this influential position during the gravest crisis of the 20th century a devout Catholic. He concluded that he could not remain silent about the humanitarian catastrophe ravaging Europe. As the consul general of a neutral country, he could do something that would make a difference by offering visas of safe passage to Portugal. Sousa Mendes directly saved 30,000 lives, 10,000 of them Jews, many of them and their descendants 
never knowing that they owed their lives to this sensitive, courageous, benevolent soul. Even today, many have never heard the name Aristides de Sousa Mendes because for decades the Portuguese government buried his memory. After the fall of the Maginot Line in spring of 1940, hundreds of thousands of refugees streamed south, desperate to cross the Pyrenees into neutral Spain and Portugal, and from there to America, Britain, or any other place that would keep them out of the Nazis' reach. By May 1940, a mighty torrent of Humanity had surged into Bordeaux, itself a few weeks from occupation. Men, women, and children, the mighty and the meek, Austrian royalty, the Belgian government in exile, Polish peasants, they were all desperate for visas. Spain allowed passage through its territory only if one could show a Portuguese transit visa. On May 17, 1940, Portuguese dictator Antonio Salazar issued a strict order to all his embassies and consulates that under no circumstances would any visa be granted unless specifically authorized by Lisbon on a case-by-case -case basis. Effectively, the Portuguese government choked off the only escape route. Day and night, refugees gathered on the steps of the Portuguese consulate, hoping for that magic signature that would unlock the doors of the gates of hell. Some could not endure the desperation and committed suicide in front of the consulate, witnessed by the consul general. So Zamendez stood at the crossroads. His signature on a piece of paper was the difference between life and death. The stroke of his pen would save. His apathy would condemn. He could do what most of us would do in these circumstances. Nothing. I don't hear a sound inside the whale. He could have reasoned like most of us would. It's not my job to determine policy. I simply follow the instructions of my government. I have a family to support. And in any case, what can one person do? This crisis is too big, and I am too small to make any difference at all. Or, so Zamendez could defy the Portuguese dictator, and obey a higher authority, his conscience, his sense of right and wrong, the commands of the eternal God. The only way I can respect my faith as a Christian, he said, is to act in accordance with the dictates of my conscience. And so he acted. He knew the price of defiance. It could cost him everything. 
on June 14, 1940, like so many prophets before him who asked God to die. So Zamendez had some kind of emotional breakdown. He lay in bed for three days. We can only imagine his mental agony and his spiritual turmoil as thousands desperately gathered each day on the steps of the consulate. When the storm passed and the clouds of doubt parted, he arose from his bed. It was as if he was newly born, determined to carry out the will of God come what may. He instructed the consulate support staff not to disturb him for anything. No food, no phone call, no business. He would come out when he was ready, he said. And thus began the most consequential four days of courage, valor, and nobility. In a frenzy of non-stop, single-minded heroism, Sosa Mendez created an assembly line of 30,000 visas. Day and night, he stamped the passports of those who had passports. And for those who did not, Sosa Mendez signed transit visas on ordinary slips of paper. He didn't restrict himself to Bordeaux. He also supervised the smaller Portuguese consulate in Bayonne, further south. In mid-June, Sosa Mendez set up a visa assembly line there as well. He even traveled to the border where he walked the streets, issuing visas on scraps of paper that any refugee presented to him free of charge. The Portuguese dictator was incensed. It took a month to shut down the visa operation and to recall Sosa Mendes to Lisbon. But by then, tens of thousands had been saved. Salazar's authoritarian rule lasted for decades, until 1968. He had a 32-year reign. Sosa Mendes was destroyed overnight. He was officially shunned and declared a disgraced non-person. The government described him as an emotionally unstable rebel and ordered that no one be in contact with him or his family. Stripped of his right to practice law, his diplomatic status, his pension, he lost everything. His good name, his position, his standing, income, he lost all his wealth, he lost all his friends. He lost his family, who were blacklisted. His wife, Angelina, died three years after the war. All but one of his 14 children emigrated from Portugal. So Zamendez himself spent his final years disgraced and impoverished, taking meals at a highest soup kitchen. In 1954, 
He died penniless in a Franciscan monastery. No one paid attention. There were no obituaries, no public recognition. In 1966, Yad Vashem honored Sosa Mendes as a righteous Gentile. It was only in 1988 that the Portuguese government finally dismissed all charges, promoting him to the title of ambassador and acknowledging the unique heroism of this amazing man. Sosa Mendes never regretted what he did even during the time of his greatest hardship, shunned and discredited. He said, I could not have acted otherwise and therefore accept all that has befallen me. I can't stop thinking of what he was reported to have told Angelina in June of 1940 upon making his fateful decision that would saved the lives of so many at such a high cost to him. I have it in my hands now, he said, to save the many thousands of persons who have come from everywhere in Europe in the hope of finding sanctuary in Portugal. They are all human beings. And their status in life, their religion, their color, are entirely immaterial to me. And he concluded by saying these immortal words, words that reach out to us from eight decades ago, urging us to get out of the whale and act. Words of soaring inspiration, describing the very sentiments that propelled so many prophets and freedom fighters throughout history to stand up for humanity and decency, knowing that they risked all. Aristides de Sousa Mendes said to Angelina, I would rather stand with God against man than with man against God.